0: Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and today I'm talking with Max Boot, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and author most recently of Invisible Armies, an epic history of guerrilla warfare from ancient times to the present. Max, thank you for being with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, you are the author of the historical backgrounder for the new issue of Strategica, where the topic is what do the jihadists want? So before we even answer that, let's go back a step and ask why does the answer to that question matter? Because you will occasionally hear the argument that basically says we know them by their fruit. We're judging by their actions. We know they're out to kill people. We know they're out to wreak havoc. I don't need to understand them. I just need to defeat them. So what's your response to people who take that tack?
1: Well, killing people and blowing things up are tactics. They're not an end in and of itself. At least I don't think it is. Uh, you know, jihadists are perpetrating acts of violence as well as doing many other things uh, with an objective in mind. And I think it's, you know, very hard to uh, figure out how to defeat them unless you can understand uh, what their objective is. And you know that's what I'm aiming to do with, with my essay, and, and other contributors are aiming to do as well.
0: And when we come to the actual question itself, what do the jihadists want? That's a question that you can imagine eliciting enormous you know academic treatises, volumes of casuistry, and yet you respond in your piece with a single word. So tell me what that word is and why that's your conclusion.
1: Well, I don't think it's, you know, all that complex and maybe this is a sign that I don't have enough I don't have enough advanced degrees or I don't spend enough time in academia, but I think <laughs> it really comes down to something pretty simple, which is they want power. I mean, why else are they doing this? It's it's not because they love to kill people, although undoubtedly some of them love to kill people, but uh they have a, a larger goal in mind, which is to create a state which they run according to their own twisted version of sharia law. That's what they're after. Uh, and all the all the killing, all the mayhem, as well as all the propaganda and everything else they do, I believe, is designed to achieve that end.
0: Now, you n- note in the strategic piece that the religious fervor, the, the intensity of the jihadists, is one of their great strengths. There's obviously a sort of attraction that accompanies feeling something that intensely. You also contend, however, that it's one of the underlying weaknesses of the movement. Explain that.
1: Well, it's a say it's a sign of strength, obviously, because it can lead to self-sacrifice. It can lead to great devotion and the ability to fight on against desperate odds, whereas those who are less motivated might just decide to quit. But the flip side of that is that hardcore jihadists have a very, Uh, unsparing view of how life should be lived that has very little appeal to most people, including most Muslims. I mean, you've seen this when uh, Salafists have managed to set up states in places like uh, Taliban-era Afghanistan or in Iran today, they have quickly alienated the bulk of the population. And that's been true historically as well, a few times that such states have actually been created uh, they tend to lose popular support very quickly because most people are not interested in living uh, by such strict uh, religious precepts. Uh, they want to live a normal life, to have, you know, some fun and to and to enjoy themselves and to uh, be able to provide for themselves and their families. And the precepts of of Sharia laws interpreted by jihadists stand in the way of that. Uh, so they're very purity and devotion to this fundamentalist cause uh, can prove a great weakness because it can discredit them among those whom they seek to proselytize.
0: One of the examples that you turn to in this piece is Chechnya and the Northern Caucasus, but you don't start in the present day. Uh, You begin by taking the reader back to the 19th century and to Islamic resistance to Russian rule of the region then. So tell us how jihadism played out then and how the russians eventually counteracted it
1: well this was one of the longest running uh jihadist struggles that went on for decades from the late 18th until the mid 19th centuries uh where uh these fundamentalists uh in in chechnya and dagestan and other parts of the northern caucasus fought on against Russian rule, which they saw as being the encroachments of infidels. And that movement created one of the most famous girl leaders of all time, Shammel, who was a, became a legendary leader of these mountaineers. And he led raid after raid upon the Russians that cost the Russians uh, thousands of men and prevented them from consolidating their control. But Shammel was in many ways similar to modern jihadist leaders today of Osama bin Laden and others, uh, or Abu Musab al Zarqawi in Iraq, whose very fervor ultimately uh, became a weakness, and whose attempts to institute this very fundamentalist version of Sharia law on the population of the Northern Caucasus rankled many people, especially tribal elders whose authority uh, he was usurping. The Russians, for their part, initially tried just brute force tactics, uh, which did not succeed and only alienated further uh, these Muslim populations. But as the 19th century went along, the Russians became smarter about how to wage counterinsurgency and understood that you had to have a a carrot as well as a stick. And they began to buy off tribal leaders to offer opportunities and, and protection to them. And gradually, they were able to wean many of these uh mountain chieftains and and their followers away from Shamel and his and his jihadists and It was by using a combination of these soft and hard tactics by trying to appeal to hearts and minds as well as by using uh fierce and uh and and, and smart uh military measures against Shamal that the Russians were ultimately able to defeat this insurgency to capture Shamal and to bring at least a temporary degree of peace uh, to the northern caucasus
0: and there's a remarkable story in your piece that sort of underscores the brutality of the radicals about Shamal and his his use of his mother explain that to the audience
1: well this was one of the legendary stories Uh, that Shamal spread far and wide that formed part of the legend of his rule. And it was, you know, it was, the story had it that uh, there were a group of these Chechens uh, who were so hard-pressed by the Russian assault that they wanted to surrender, but they were afraid uh, to tell Shamal of their desire because they feared his reaction. And so they asked his mother to go to Shamal and to convey their request to surrender. And so as the story had it, when he heard this, Shamal said that you know, he would seek divine guidance in order to formulate an answer, and so he spent the next 3 days and nights in the mosque fasting and praying, uh, only to emerge with bloodshot eyes to announce, it is the will of Allah that whoever first transmitted to me the shameful intentions of the Chechen people should receive 100 severe blows, and that person is my own mother." And so then, to the astonishment of the crowd, uh, his followers seized his very mother and began beating her with a strap, and she fainted away after the fifth blow, and then shamo himself announced that he would take the rest of the punishment on him, and so his men beat him with these heavy whips, uh, and he absorbed 95 blows without betraying the least sign of suffering. Uh, you know, this was something that was obviously horrifying, but also impressive. And it really conveyed to the people of Chechnya and Dagestan how fierce was Shamal's will and his desire to resist, that he would beat his own mother, that he would allow himself to be whipped. This was a measure of of how fanatical and dedicated he was.
0: And you note that in subsequent years, maybe differing in degree, but both Stalin and Vladimir Putin have embraced something closer to the brutality, the original response of the Russians in the early 19th century. Right?
1: That's right. I mean, uh, there was yet another uprising uh, in in Chechnya uh, in in later years uh, in the 1940s, and Stalin, you know, did not believe in the carrots and sticks approach. He was pretty much into sticks, and so he deported something like half a million Chechens and others uh, to Central Asia, with tens of thousands dying along the way and only being allowed to return home after Stalin's death. Uh, And so then, you know, Chechnya was quiet for another few decades. But then when Russia, the Soviet Union was falling apart in the 1990s, Chechens saw a chance for independence and they seized it. And Russia invaded twice, uh, the second time under Putin in 1999. And since then, the Russian army has really followed a scorched earth policy in Chechnya, killing something like 100,000 Chechens, perhaps 20,000 Russian soldiers have also died. And they have managed to uh, crush resistance, at least directly in Chechnya. But nevertheless, uh, Islamist radicals remain very active in the northern Caucasus and southern Russia. And so the struggle continues. Uh, you know i think what the russians are realizing today is is what an earlier generation of russian counterinsurgents learned in the early 19th century which is that it's not enough simply to kill people and to blow up buildings i mean you do have to make some attempt to appeal to the population and to make them accept the legitimacy of your rule and that is not something that putin has had much interest in and as a result of that uh, you know the the stability of the northern caucasus and southern russia remains very precarious and in fact it's an issue for the upcoming winter olympics which is going to be held in in the region uh... because that's something that uh... the the islamist radicals have vowed to 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 target uh... so you know i think there is much that putin and and his generals can learn today from the example of their predecessors in the nineteenth century and understand there is more to successful counterinsurgency warfare than blood and destruction
0: okay so Finally, we've laid the predicate for the importance of the historical analysis. So tell us, looking at the history that you've just laid out and maybe moving it over to an American context, what are the underlying principles we can take away from this? If I'm an American policymaker in 2013, I look at these historical examples and what are my takeaways in terms of combating jihadism and employing effective counterinsurgency? I
1: think one of the big takeaways is that Jihadism contains the seeds of its own undoing because it is inherently unpopular. And, you know, jihadists try to hide behind slogans about attacking the United States, about attacking Israel. But what they really seek to do is to exert power over their own population and to do it in ways that would never be democratically ratified. So I think, you know, the challenge for American policymakers today as we battle jihadism around the world. Is not only to blow up uh, individual terrorists, although we certainly should be doing that, uh, but it's also to blow up the sources of their legitimacy and popularity by being very smart in, in the kind of information operations and political warfare that we run to expose the unpopular designs that jihadists have upon the Muslim world and to discredit them to show how they are truly tyrants who will not deliver on their appeals, but instead will create very unpopular and very ineffective governments that will not deliver prosperity and the other things that people in the Muslim world really want. So that's, that's a weakness that we need to exploit, and we have exploited in the past, for example, in Iraq in 2007, 2008, when we brought over most of the Sunni population to our side and weaned them away from al-Qaeda in Iraq. That's a model that we should be following elsewhere, whether in Egypt, Syria, Libya, what have you, that's going to be the way that we're ultimately going to succeed in this kind of warfare.
0: Our guest today has been Max Boot, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and author, most recently, of Invisible Armies, an epic history of guerrilla warfare from ancient times to the present. You can read his historical background on jihadism for Strategica at Hoover dot org slash Strategica S T R A T E G I K A. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution.
1: Thank you for listening.